This is Money Guide with Mary Stirk from Stirk Financial Services. Now, here's Mary Stirk. So um, we had a a client come in, and she was really going through a rough divorce. And unfortunately, things had gotten really contentious, and her soon-to-be ex had offered her a really low-ball property settlement. We worked with her and were able to help her craft a counterproposal that was actually equitable and fair. And we were able to educate her about the fact that what might look at first glance that two things would have the same value, why you might not consider them to actually be an equal value. Um, At the end of the day, the settlement left both spouses in the best possible position. And best of all, she could hold her head high and know that she was making educated and fair offers in the middle of a challenging situation. So um, the understanding what the real value of assets is and why you have to consider that I think is a really important um, piece of the process for people who are going through a traumatic issue like a divorce. So today with me, we have Kelsey Banky. Welcome, Kelsey. Hi, Mary. Glad to be back. Thank you. Kelsey is a certified financial planner with us at Stirk Financial. And um, Kelsey actually has some really unique training in a process that we want to talk a little bit about. It's called the collaborative divorce process. So, um, you know, this is not an easy issue to talk about. No one likes going through a divorce. It's a traumatic time, and, and we're very empathetic to that. I myself have been through a divorce, so I know what people are going through. And we learned about this collaborative divorce process that I think is something that's very interesting to know. So, Kelsey, tell us a little bit about that. The collaborative divorce process, it really is a a great option, um, but it's not the right option for everybody. So uh, for someone uh, or a couple that's, that's getting ready to go through a divorce, it may not be all... Uh, crazy fighting and, and and having to go to court and really battling it out um, with lawyers and judges if there is the potential to be able to resolve uh, the divorce and come to agreements on property settlements and, and custody arrangements and alimony and child support and all of those things. If you think there's the potential that you could resolve that outside of the court system, then considering a collaborative divorce process could be very beneficial for you. Um, in the collaborative divorce process, each party in the divorce would hire a trained attorney someone trained in the collaborative process. And at the very beginning, you agree to the process and you agree to the um, the rules of engagement, I guess we'll say. Um, so those rules being that you're going to have full disclosure. So there's no hiding things. There's no keeping secrets from each other. There's, there's not supposed to be hidden assets somewhere. Everything is supposed to be upfront and, um, and honest. The second part of this is that, you know, it can't, you cannot go to uh, the, the court system after this. You cannot go the adversarial route. If you do, if you say, I'm done with the collaborative process and we're going the adversarial route, you have to start over. You have to fire your attorneys, hire new ones, and start the entire process over. So the reason it's called collaborative is at the beginning, both spouses have to agree to work with a collaborative divorce attorney Mm -hmm. and go through the entire process. And you have to both agree that if either one of you decides to stop going the collaborative report or route, 
that you both have to fire your attorneys. You both have to hire new attorneys and start all over in the adversarial normal process of divorce. Absolutely. So it's and got it, some teeth to it. It does. And, it, and it's not necessarily that it's all going to be, you know, kitties and rainbows, as I like to say, as you're going through <laughs> this. There's You're still humans. You're still going through the divorce process. And there's going to be times when you disagree. But there is a, a different way to go about it. And it might mean that you take a break and then you come back to the resolution again. You can use um, things such as mediators to help you through certain decisions. Um, but through that process, the goal is to um, get through the process, come to those decisions in agreement and um, get through that divorce without having to drag it through the court system. And a lot of times it can um, result in a, a very um, fair division of assets, a very um, good uh, solution for child support and alimony and, and other things of that nature. And um, most importantly, it's helping come to a really good agreement if there were children in the marriage on how you're going to continue to raise those children, both of you, and how you're going to continue to support them and what kind of lifestyle they're going to lead. Um, so it can be a very great process. I encourage you to look into it if it's something you think that would work for you or someone that you love. Um, but it's very unique. And, and what I what I found interesting about it and why I wanted to get trained in it is um, going through the process, you know, uh, not everybody knows everything about their assets. And so <laughs> um, they, they will frequently hire in specialists, whether it be um, child therapists that can help um, with the custody arrangement or um, there's uh, financial planners that can come in, CPAs, things like that. So you can hire in specialists to help you navigate these decisions. And um, a financial planner like myself who's trained in the process can come in and help show both sides because, again, it's not one side hiring it or the other. It's it's a person that's hired for the, the group. And they can come in and show you what is fair and and they really dig down into the tax treatment especially of all the different things that come into the divorce settlement so let's talk a little bit about the tax treatment because that really speaks to some of the reasons that not all assets are equal in a divorce it comes down in some instances to what the tax implications are Okay, so for instance, sometimes we see um, property settlement offers where one spouse wants to take a traditional IRA and one spouse wants to keep the Roth IRA. So let's say you have a traditional IRA worth $100,000 and you have a Roth IRA worth $100,000. Without being aware that you're making a mistake, you might think that two different investment accounts, each valued at $100,000, are actually equal. But the reality of it is, is it that they're not equal. You know, and, and think about when I say this, think about the idea that the dollar bill is the same size and shape and weight as the $100 bill. <laughs> but they're not equal. <laughs> and it's the same thing when you think about investment accounts because you have to consider the tax implications of it. What I mean by that is this. In a traditional IRA, when you decide you're going to take that out and spend the money, then you have to pay taxes on that first. So if you're in a 25% tax bracket, your $100,000 IRA is actually worth $75,000 of spendable money to you. A Roth IRA has completely different tax treatment. If you've held it for a certain amount of time and if you're a certain age, then you would be able to utilize 100% of those assets without having to pay tax on it. And so $100,000 in a Roth IRA under the right circumstances is actually worth $100,000. 
of spendable money. So the tax treatment on different types of IRAs really speaks to the fact about what it's worth to you. Now, um, I guess my thought is that at the end of the day, most people do want to be equitable and fair when they're dividing property. And I think this is good information for everybody to know is that you want to look at the after-tax value of something in order to help make it a determination of what the value is of something. It's not just that top-line number. Another place that we see this um, play out sometime is in the value of a residence versus the value of, say, a rental property. Okay, so if you own a primary residence and let's say that you own a $250,000 home, okay, and you maybe have uh, paid $200,000 for that, but now it's worth $250,000, okay, when you go to sell that house, if you've lived in that house for at least two out of the last five years, this gain, this gain in value of $50,000 If you've lived in that house, you probably don't have to pay taxes on the capital gains of that house as long as you go buy a new house, okay? Um, But that's not the way that it necessarily works if you sell a rental property, all right? So if you have a rental property that's worth $250,000 and that you have $200,000 that you paid for it, when you sell that rental property and let's say you want to do something else with that money, you are likely to have to pay capital gains tax on the increase in value of the rental property. It's different than a primary residence. And so two different properties valued at the same amount when you dispose of them could have two very different ending values after you've settled your taxes. So that's something that people don't often think about when they're going through a property settlement is how that can impact somebody. Now, one of the things that we often see in a divorce setting is that the house is something that people really fight about all the time. Yes, all the time. <laughs> and here's the thing that I would I would want to just put out there is that I... I wish I could influence people to not fight about the house because at the end of the day, the house is probably not one of the best assets to take in a divorce because it's going to require a lot of upkeep and future costs and taxes and maybe you have a mortgage and you're going to have to keep paying that mortgage on a a lower level of income. And so the reason people want the house isn't necessarily because it's a great investment. People want the house because they're emotionally attached to it and because it's weirdly, I don't know why, but weirdly like the first question people ask, oh, you got divorced? Well, did you keep the house? And you know, an asset's an asset, and when you look at assets, you want to be looking at not just what the current value is, but you want to look at the future potential of that asset and what it's going to do for you in your life. So just be a little bit careful about emotionally attaching to the house, because um, I think that that's going to be something that a lot of people do, and that if we can help you avoid that pitfall, that's a good thing. So we do have a seminar coming up that is to help people who are contemplating or going through a divorce, help them navigate the financial side of things. It's coming up on July 26th. You can register through our website or give us a call to register. And um, if you know somebody that's going through a divorce, just suggest to them that they check it out. It's really helpful to help people get organized through the process, help you understand what to ask for in alimony, how to prove out what your needs are. It's helpful to help you figure out how to uh, determine what the assets are, find hidden assets, how to do that. 
We'll talk about educating you about some of the things you need to know post-divorce, which will help you make decisions during the divorce process. And ultimately, our goal is to help you get to the other side and set yourself up in a way that you're really confident about moving forward in life after this divorce happens. So give us a call, July 26th, Navigating Your Finances Through a Divorce. Congratulations to Mary Stirk and the team at Stirk Financial for earning a spot on two Forbes lists for six years running, including 2023 Forbes Best in State Wealth Advisors and 2023 Forbes Top Women Wealth Advisors Best in State, number one in South Dakota. So sometimes we see offers of... Um, Somebody's offered a really nice house. So let's say you're a wealthier family and your home is worth a half a million dollars and um, that they're stacking that up and saying, you keep the half million dollar house and that's going to give us the half million dollar business. Okay. So what is not equal about that is what the future opportunity is from that asset. So, I mean, Kelsey, what would you say a house has opportunity for in the future? You know, there's going to be some growth to it, maybe 2%, maybe a little bit more or less, depending on the market, um, but, but not much. <laughs> right. And a business is an income-producing source. So a business that can create value or a business that maybe is worth something uh, from a revenue perspective, but worth a different amount if you are actually going to sell it, maybe it sells for a multiple of that. Those are two very different things. So the future potential of an asset is something you want to consider when you're doing a division of property. It's the same thing uh, when you look at something like cash versus an income producing property. So sometimes we see offers of, well, I'll give you the bank account that's worth $100,000 and I'll keep the rental property that's worth $100,000. All right, so can you see what the issue with that might be? <laughs> <laughs> the rental property is creating rent that's an income. The rental property, when they sell that, would still be worth whatever it's worth at the time that they sell it. So you get two benefits from an income-producing property versus maybe one benefit from a cash source, depending on what you do with that cash. So when we say that not all assets are created equal in a divorce, that is a very, very true statement. And you have to look at the tax implications. You have to look at the future potential to make really good decisions about what is worth keeping for you and what you want to maybe let go of. So, okay. So um, let's talk a little bit about... Um, inherited or gifted values. So Kelsey, when, when you've worked on different divorce cases, have you found it pretty common that spouses have inherited money or been gifted things over time? Yeah, it, it depends on how old the couple is at the time of the divorce, but very, very commonly people who are a little bit further into their years, maybe have been married for several years. One of them has lost a parent or a loved one, um, aunt, uncle, whoever it may be that has left them something and they've inherited some property or been gifted some property. Yeah. Now, um, you know, when our radio show airs, we're usually talking to an audience in Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota. But then we take these and we have created podcasts that are available on iTunes. So we actually have people listening from all over the world. Um, and one of the things that's interesting is that certain states are community property states and certain states are what are called equitable distribution states. Now, community property states right now are Alaska, Arizona, California, 
Idaho, Louisiana, Nevada, New Mexico, Texas, Washington, and Wisconsin. And in general, um, community property states, is a, it's like, you know, everything is jointly owned. In general, that's the way that it looks. They don't necessarily um, say that it, that things that you in, accumulated during the marriage are outside of the split. But equitable distribution states generally follow what's called an equitable distribution philosophy. And these states agree that marital property should be divided equitably rather than equally. So there's two different words, equitably and equally are two different things. And um, some of the states will include separate property like inheritance and gifts. They'll categorize that differently than what marital property is. So marital property is something that maybe you accumulated together or that grew in value when you were together. But separate property in some states is going to be what you've inherited or what you were given as a gift. Okay, so you have to check with your state as to whether or not certain assets that you have are even going to be considered in the property settlement. So if you inherited a farm from your family in some states, that might get split in a divorce. And in some states, that's outside the formula altogether. Um, we even worked on a divorce case one time where the um, husband had been gifted money every year from his family of $10,000, and they put that money, $5,000 a piece, into each spouse's Roth IRA. And they had a 10-year history where this gifting had happened, and both spouses had these nice Roth IRAs, but because the source of that money was the gifts from one side of the family, then the, pers- the, the husband whose parents had given him that money was able to keep both of those Roth IRAs and they were totally outside the formula of what was going to get split in the marriage because the fruit of the tree, the, the fruit of where that money came from was a gift from his parents and they could prove that that's where the money went. So it's really interesting about how some states differ from others in terms of how what they're even going to include as to whether or not it's going to get split. <laughs> so... That's something to keep in mind too. Okay, so um, one of the things that people um, are not aware of too is what the tax ramifications are if you sell property during or after a divorce. Okay, so when you transfer property to a spouse, let's say that the wife gets the house. Okay, when the husband transfers it to her, There is no tax ramifications of that. And if she sells that house down the road, the husband doesn't have any tax ramifications on the sale. Okay. Um, If you you sell any transfer between properties of spouses that is made and occurs within six years of a divorce is actually considered to be incident to the divorce. So if you um, delay the sale of a property... It depends on how you've done the transfer and how you've written your decree as to whether or not there might be tax consequences down the road. But generally speaking, any property that moves and is distributed within six years of a divorce is still considered to be part of the divorce event. And the taxation trails back to how that divorce decree was set up. So you want to be aware of that if you if you know that there might be a delayed sale of something or if there's an immediate sale of something, you want to be aware of how that's all going to roll. Okay, 
Let's talk about something that I think people find really interesting, and that's how to find hidden assets. <laughs> so, um, you know, unfortunately, when you're going through a divorce process, it's easy to know that um, there's certain things out there, but it's sometimes not always as easy to figure out exactly where the assets are, especially if you're the spouse that really didn't manage anything. You know, if you're the spouse that didn't take care of the investments or stuff like that. So there's a couple different places that you can look to find information on that. Kelsey, what's the most common one that you that you see people using? The personal income tax return is, is a really great tool. Anything that was sold or had a, a gain or a loss or anything like that is going to be on that tax return. So you're going to want to look back over several years worth of returns to see what all is listed in there, what statements are in there, what 1099s are in there, 5498s, all those different tax forms are a paper trail on money that is out there in the name of somebody in the marriage. Yeah, it was really interesting. One time we worked with a client who, um, when we analyzed the tax return, we saw that there was an income piece from a trust that she didn't even know her spouse had. <laughs> and we were able to find that there was this whole other piece of money out there that she didn't even know about uh, that was creating income, and we found it through the tax return. So dividends off of, of accounts, um, interest from savings accounts you might not know occur, things like that. All of those investment and interest statements are supposed to be reported on your tax return. So the tax return is kind of a goldmine of information for something that creates income. We also think that, you know, it's a good idea to look at corporate tax returns, too, because um, some corporations are allowed to hold cash. And sometimes the cash inside a corporation is held in such a way that it's it's not necessarily evident when you're looking at valuations of companies. So um, if you want to make sure that that cash doesn't get, quote unquote, hidden, then looking at a corporate tax return to see what's creating income in the corporation is also a smart idea. Now, let's say that you're spouse or you took out a loan at some time in the past. A w another way to look for hidden assets is to go back and look at the financial statement that a bank may have created at the time that you took out a loan anytime recently. Because you would have had to prove what you had to the bank in order to get a loan. And so the documentation of what you might own is likely to be on that bank financial statement. So that's another way to think about it. And then there's one other little trick that sometimes people do. And sometimes parents will take a load of cash and put it into an account in a child's name. And um, if until that, um, until that account is kicking off enough interest for the child to need to file a return, then that maybe is outside the sphere of what you're going to be able to cap catch and find in your own personal tax return because you know the child doesn't need to file a tax return until there's a certain amount of income and so sometimes we see people stacking up money inside of a child's account in order to kind of hide it during the process and so you want to kind of search for anything that might have your kids names on it because that could be a hidden source too where people have of have looked for assets so anyway join us for our seminar coming up on july the 26th Give us a call, and um, we also have a great giveaway. It's a divorce property settlement booklet, and it'll give you some tips or tricks about finding hidden assets and then think smart things to think about when it comes to splitting your assets. The views expressed are not necessarily the opinion of your audio provider and should not be construed directly or indirectly as an offer to buy or sell any securities or services mentioned herein. Investing is subject to risks, including loss of principal invested. 
past performance is not a guarantee of future results. No strategy can ensure a profit nor protect against loss. Please note that individual situations can vary. Therefore, the information should only be relied upon when coordinated with individual professional advice. Securities and investment advisory services are offered through Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated, member FINRA SIPC. Insurance offered through Sterk Financial Services, which is not affiliated with Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated. Neither Woodbury Financial Services Incorporated nor its representatives provide tax or legal advice. You should consult a qualified attorney or tax professional to answer your specific questions. Sterk Financial Services is located at 350 Oak Tree Lane, Suite 150, Dakota Dunes, South Dakota, 57049, and can be reached at 605-217-3555. Forbes Best in State Wealth Advisors list includes 10 recipients per state. The award is based on qualitative and quantitative data, rating thousands of wealth advisors with a minimum of seven years of experience and weighing factors like revenue trends, assets under management, compliance records, industry experience, and best practices. The award is not based on portfolio performance or client reviews. There is no fee in exchange for rankings. Third-party rankings and recognitions are no guarantee of future investment success and do not ensure that a client or prospective client will experience a higher level of performance or results. These ratings should not be construed as an endorsement of the advisor by any client nor are they representative of any one client's evaluation.